violence that we associate with the Arab-Israeli conflict began probably with a misunderstanding. It happened 98 years ago, on March 1st, 1920, in a tiny Jewish settlement called Tel Hai, just a few miles south of today's border with Lebanon. Tel Hai and other nearby Jewish settlements sat on the border region between British-controlled Palestine and French-controlled Syria and Lebanon. And at the time, in 1920, the Arabs were fighting a war with the French over control of that territory. We talked the last couple episodes about the secret deal that the Arabs made with the British in 1915 to create an independent Arab empire from the former Ottoman Empire lands. But the British also made a deal with the French a year later in 1916 for that same territory, the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement. And now the French and the Arabs were fighting it out. It was a war that the Arabs will lose. But this made the border region and the presence of the Jewish settlements there both strategic and tense. Arab raiding parties frequently descended on the settlements under the pretense of looking for French soldiers and spies. And so on this March 1st day in 1920, several hundred Arabs and Bedouin came down from Lebanon to Tel Hai, again claiming to be looking for the French. In the Jews' perspective, though, the Arabs were coming instead to attack the village, to force them out, even to murder them. It's hard to know what the real reason was. Probably there is truth in both and such as the beginning of competing narratives in the Arab-Israeli conflict. A Jewish farmer, seeing the Arabs coming, fired a shot in the air to signal for help from the Jewish village of Kifar Giladi, a few hundred meters away. Ten men responded from Hashomer, the watchman, the small defense force that defended settlements like Tel Hai. And these ten men were led by Joseph Trumpledore. You remember Trumpledore. The swashbuckling, one-armed Zionist hero from the First World War who led the Zion Mule Corps at the Battle of Gallipoli. By the age of 39, he had already been the most decorated Jew in Russian military history, a prisoner of war of the Japanese, a farmer at Israel's first kibbutz, Daganya, and since the end of the First World War in 1918, he had been organizing Jewish self-defense groups both in Russia and in Palestine, and now found himself up in the north. He arrived to Tel Hai with his ten men, and it's unclear exactly what happened next. Some reports say that an Arab searching the village surprised a Jewish woman, Deborah, who had a gun. Whether she shot the Arab in surprise, or he shot at her, or someone's gun went off accidentally somewhere, we don't really know. But a firefight broke out. Although both sides tried to declare a ceasefire to extricate themselves from what they both acknowledged was a big misunderstanding, in the confusion of combat, the fighting raged on. Trumpledore was shot in the hand and the stomach. An American doctor back in Kifargiladi tried to treat him, but he couldn't be saved. As he passed into Zionist martyrology and became an Israeli national hero, Trumpledore is famously said to have mumbled, Eindavar, tov la mut senu. Never mind. It is good to die for our country. Six Jews and five Arabs were killed that day. The Jews left Tel Hai because they couldn't defend it anymore and the Arabs burned down the village. The Jews came back the next year to rebuild, and Tel Hai was absorbed into Kibbutz Kifar Giladi, which still exists today. The six Jews, together with two other Jews who had been killed a few months earlier, were buried together by a stone monument of a lion, representing the defiance of Trumpledore and his comrades. And if you've been to northern Israel, you've probably been to the largest city up there, which is named in their honor, the Town of Eight, or in Hebrew, Kiryat Shmona. And so it begins, the great conflict of violence and misunderstanding and futility and grievance that plagues the Middle East and our understanding of Zionism and Israel 
and relations with the Arabs, and even relationships within our own Jewish communities. It has spiraled out from a single warning shot on that day in 1920 to include many more guns and bombs, suicide bombers, warplanes, rockets, mortars, knives, vehicle ramming attacks, and all the other ways that people have devised to kill each other. We've made it through a whole bunch of episodes now on early Israeli history this season without getting into the Arab-Israeli conflict too much. But no more. From now on, it will be one of the defining features of this story. And yet, as we will see, although the 1920s marks the beginning of violent conflict between Arabs and Jews, it wasn't inevitable. It didn't have to be this way. Mistakes were made on all sides. Arabs, Jews, and especially in my view, by the British who couldn't manage the pickle of overpromises they had gotten themselves into during World War I. But as there were periods of violence during the 1920s, there was also mostly periods of calm and relative peace, with economic prosperity for Jews and Arabs alike, and the building of new Zionist institutions to organize and enrich Jewish life. All that and more over the next few episodes. I'm Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Just one month after the violence at Tel Hai, a riot broke out in Jerusalem's old city. Zionist leaders would later say that it wasn't a riot, it was a pogrom. Thousands of Arabs were in the city for an annual Muslim festival, where they heard violent, inflammatory speeches from leading Arab officials, including the mayor of Jerusalem. With that all-too-familiar cry of death to the Jews, Arab officials, including the local police, urged the crowds to raid the Jewish quarter. We will drink the blood of the Jews, they cried. It's not sure exactly what changed things from an angry protest into outright violence, depending on the account, one side or the other was provoked, but the subsequent rioting resulted in the deaths of five Jews, four Arabs, hundreds of injuries, and destroyed Jewish homes, businesses, and a cemetery. It was all compounded by the British military's decision to evacuate its troops from the old city, rather than, as was their mission, to try to stop the fighting in the first place. The British would later admit that was a mistake. It took them four days to regain control of the city and maintain a peace. And if the reason for the fighting at Tel Hai was a little unclear, the riots in Jerusalem in April 1920 were much more focused. The Arabs were protesting two things. Two grievances that had been steadily simmering until in 1920 they boiled over. In the first, the Arabs were angry about the failure to get the independent Arab empire, which had been promised to them by the British. They felt betrayed that the land that they were supposed to get in Syria and Lebanon and parts of Palestine had instead been turned over to the French and the British. World War I and its Wilsonian idealism was supposed to bring about the end of this kind of colonialism, but in the Middle East it was persisting. And so the Arabs were angry that the self-determination promoted for people throughout the former Ottoman Empire was, in their view, denied to them. And speaking of self-determination, they were angry too about the 1917 Balfour Declaration and what that might mean for Palestine. Britain's Balfour Declaration gave the Jews, the clear minority population in Palestine, the right of self-determination over that of the majority Arab population. When things were supposed to be the opposite, the majority ethnic group was supposed to rule in their own territory. The British openly acknowledged that this was the case, 
And they argued that it had to be this way because one, they had promised the Jews a national homeland in Palestine. And two, since the Arabs would certainly reject the creation of that Jewish homeland, the British couldn't allow them to rule Palestine alone. The Arabs worried too that the Balfour Declaration would lead to massive Jewish immigration to Palestine, which in time would mean that the Jews would have the political and economic power. And looking back on it now, well, yeah, I mean, they were right to be worried. That is what happened, although it took several more decades. And let's be honest, too, that's what the Zionists were going for. The whole point of the Zionist movement at that point was to create this Jewish homeland as a place of safety and renewal for Jews around the world. In order to do that, they couldn't be a minority subject people, nor could they share power. They had to run the place. What we are seeing here are the beginnings of Arab nationalism. Like Zionism, the Jewish nationalist movement, it was based around the idea of establishing a sovereign homeland for the Arabs, who, remember, had been subject people of the Ottoman Empire now for hundreds of years. They also wanted a place to renew Arab culture, language, history, and connection. But also, like Zionism, it was at first a minority movement. Although it began as a reaction to the Ottoman Empire, most Arabs weren't particularly opposed to being Ottoman citizens. And whereas the Zionist movement had a few decades of lead time on building support for a Jewish national homeland, the Arabs didn't have anything approaching unity until, in the aftermath of World War I, they realized that they weren't obtaining independence just about anywhere in the Middle East. It had all been carved up by the imperial Western powers. Beginning in 1920 and continuing throughout the decade, a number of Arab revolts did achieve limited success in altering British and French policies and according some autonomy to local Arab rulers. Attacking Zionism in Palestine, which was seen as an extension of British colonialism, thus became one of the prominent features of the movement. But the Arab rioters in April 1920 weren't naturally inclined towards violence. In fact, most local Arab leaders afterwards condemned the rioting. And this is why I say that the conflict wasn't inevitable. In a pattern that would be repeated time and time again over the next century, the Arab masses in Jerusalem were incited by local Arab leaders who had an agenda. And the Arab leader who made his debut during that riot, and who, I think it's fair to say, is definitely one of the chief villains of the Arab-Israeli conflict over the last 100 years, was a 23-year-old named Amin al-Husseini. Amin al-Husseini was just then beginning an illustrious and blood-soaked career as the most prominent Palestinian leader. He was an early supporter of Palestinian nationalism, and it's unfortunate that this movement for Arab self-determination has been stained by his actions. In the 1930s and 40s, he will align himself with Hitler and the Nazis. That's for later on. But if you want to know where today's Islamic anti-Semitism comes from, a lot of it can be traced back to him. And so too can another key feature of the Arab-Israeli conflict, Arab rejectionism. That is, the Arabs' refusal to ever accept any sort of agreement that would allow for a Jewish homeland, or later Jewish state, in any part of Palestine. If the Zionist movement has an arch nemesis, it's this guy. And without him, the Arab-Israeli conflict would not have been nearly as bloody as it has been. Amin al-Husseini came from the prominent al-Husseini family, one of two Arab families that, godfather style, continuously fought each other for control over Jerusalem, irrespective at times of the Jews or Zionism. 
At the time of the 1920 riots, al-Husseini's father was the mayor. And Amin al-Husseini hated two things with a passion, the British and the Jews. Historians debate whether he was an anti-Semite from the start or whether his hatred of the Jews developed in correlation to the failure to obtain an Arab empire in which he had played a role. He gave one of the more inflammatory speeches in Jerusalem in April that incited the crowd and led to the rioting. For that, he was arrested, then released, then escaped to Syria before being convicted in absentia by the British and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Following the riots, the British realized they needed to change the way they were managing things in Palestine. Since the British army had conquered Jerusalem in 1918, Palestine had been managed by the military, with generals and army officers in charge of things. Palestine was a mess after World War I, the result of years of warfare, near famine, Ottoman mismanagement, and depleted population. The British had been focused on maintaining security and rebuilding the infrastructure to meet the basic needs. But as we're going to talk about more next episode, they were also now tasked by the League of Nations with deeper development and political management. And so they switched over to a civilian-run administration. It was organized under the High Commissioner, a kind of governor who was the highest-ranking British government official in charge of Palestine. So Palestine was now officially a colony of Britain. The British chose Herbert Samuel as the first commissioner a British Jew with government experience who was sympathetic to the Zionist cause and a supporter of the Balfour Declaration. The hope was that his appointment would relieve the anger of the Jews at Britain's failure to protect them during the riots and mitigate the overt anti-Semitism of the British military officer corps who were then in charge. Herbert Samuel's track record is much debated by historians, but let's just say this about him. He had very good intentions, but very poor execution. So worried about appearing to be partial towards the Zionist cause, he often bent over backwards in the other direction, conceding to Arab demands, even when backed by Arab violence. But he also supported the Balfour Declaration, and in this way he ended up oscillating British policy back and forth between Arabs and Jews, satisfying no one, angering everyone, and leaving lasting confusion, disquiet, and conflict. Herbert Samuel's first big tests came in Jaffa. Jaffa, in 1921, was a mixed city where Jews made up about a third of the population of 40,000, where a kind of cold peace reigned. Arabs and Jews coexisted, but with enough tension that it wouldn't take too much spark to light a fire. And that spark came on May 1st, 1921. That day, in the nearby Jewish city of Tel Aviv, competing Jewish parades broke out into a fight with each other. The police separated the Jewish sides by pushing one group to the beach between Tel Aviv and Jaffa, where the Arabs came down to see what was happening. The Arabs quickly turned into a mob, went back into Jaffa, and began attacking Jewish businesses and assaulting, raping, and killing the Jews there. As in Jerusalem, the Arab police either joined in or turned a blind eye. Some Jews retaliated, and soon several people lay dead on both sides. The fighting, which had erupted so suddenly that it caught everyone by surprise, raged for nearly a week. It spread beyond Jaffa to engulf Jewish towns throughout the area, including Petah Tikva, Hadera, and Rehovot. By the end of it, 47 Jews and 48 Arabs were dead and hundreds more injured. If anyone had hoped that the 1920 riots in Jerusalem would confine Jewish and Arab fighting to that city, 
it was now clear that the conflict had spread to all over Palestine. And here is how Herbert Samuel, the British High Commissioner, responded to the 1921 riots. First, it took him a couple of days to declare martial law and send in British troops to try to stop the fighting, which by then they really couldn't. Second, following an investigation, Samuel pretty much blamed the Jews for the whole tragedy. He temporarily suspended Jewish immigration to Palestine in an attempt to appease the Arabs. It didn't. And you can see how for the Zionists then, this was the first in a long pattern of British appeasement to Arab violence. Since this incident taught the Arabs that violent protests could change British policy in their favor against the Jews, it led to more violence. And this tactic would continue on tragically for the next hundred years, up until today really. As we'll see next episode, this conclusion, rightly or wrongly, was a key pillar in the development of right-wing Zionism and today's approach to the Arabs by the Israeli government. Herbert Samuel and the British government had a third response. Although his ban on Jewish immigration was only temporary, Samuel was stuck on this idea as the key to satisfying the Arabs. In his quest to indulge everyone and appear even-handed, he thought he could carry out the Balfour Declaration, creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, while getting the Arabs to support it by restricting Jewish immigration. He seemed to not get that the Arabs were opposed entirely to Balfour, not just the immigration part of it. So Samuel tried to reinterpret the Balfour Declaration. Sure, he said, Britain still supports the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but this doesn't mean that we're going to just allow unlimited Jewish immigration. Jewish immigration should be limited to the economic capacity of Palestine, in a way that isn't going to upset the Arab population too much. This policy became official in 1922, and it was known as the Churchill White Paper, since Winston Churchill was then the colonial secretary in charge of Britain's overseas colonies. Churchill had come to Palestine the previous year, 1921, to have a look around, and there he made another promise that further disappointed Jewish hopes for their future homeland. So it's important to remember that the geography that we're talking about here. Palestine, remember, it wasn't really a defined area. It didn't have concrete borders like a modern nation state. British Palestine in this era consisted of two large blocks of territory. The area west of the Jordan River, what is today's Israel and the West Bank, and the area east of the Jordan, today's Kingdom of Jordan, but back then called Transjordan. The Balfour Declaration issued in 1917 then, it applied to both these areas. In other words, the Jews expected that the future Jewish national homeland would be on both sides of the Jordan River, so a much bigger area than today's Israel. But in 1921, on his visit to Palestine, Winston Churchill, although he was very much a supporter of Zionism and the Balfour Declaration, made a deal with the Arabs. The Arabs were still fighting with the French up in Syria in an effort to get their own territory. And Churchill made a deal that if the Arabs stopped fighting the French, the British would essentially give them Transjordan. It would still be a British colony technically, but the Arabs would get to run it pretty much autonomously. For the British, remember, who had made that secret promise in 1915 that the Arabs would get their own territory in the Middle East, this was a fulfillment of that promise. And it also meant that Transjordan would no longer be a part of Palestine. And if it wasn't a part of Palestine anymore, then that meant that the Balfour Declaration no longer applied to that territory. Which meant that, in one stroke, the Jews lost a massive amount of potential territory for the future Jewish national home. So the Churchill White Paper of 1920 then, it did three things that the Jews didn't like. It lopped off a huge chunk of territory to give to the Arabs, limiting the future Jewish homeland to the west of the Jordan River. 
It restricted Jewish immigration to this idea of the economic capacity of Palestine. And it stated that even what was left of Palestine would not be entirely made into the future Jewish homeland, only just a part, so that the Arabs wouldn't have to worry about becoming Jewish subjects. Everyone in Palestine would remain Palestinian in the eyes of Great Britain. On the other hand, the White Paper did reaffirm Britain's commitment to the principles of the Balfour Declaration, to figuring out a way to create a Jewish national homeland in Palestine that was internationally guaranteed and formally recognized. The reactions of the Jews and the Arabs to the Churchill White Paper of 1922 would set a precedent for pretty much all future diplomatic efforts to mitigate this conflict, up until today. Despite their disappointment and misgivings, the Zionist leadership voted to accept the terms, figuring that they would just make the best of it later on. But because the White Paper still expressed support for the Jewish homeland, the Arab leadership completely rejected it. Okay, so that's sort of the beginning of the violence of the Arab-Israeli conflict, how it all got started. But there's one more thing, and this one more thing is really crucial. Herbert Samuel had one more response to the 1921 riots. In what has to be seen as one of the single greatest missteps of the 20th century, no joke, Herbert Samuel appointed a Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. What's that? Well, a Mufti is an Islamic religious leader. And the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem was both that and the leading political official for the Arab community in Palestine, since that post would represent the Arab community to the British High Commission. Now, Herbert Samuel guaranteed that the office of the Grand Mufti would be a violent, uncompromising, inciting, and anti-Semitic power source by appointing to the post none other than Amin al-Husseini. He pardoned his conviction for the 1920s riots and brought him back to Jerusalem as the senior most Arab official. His elevation to the leadership of the Arab community guaranteed lasting, bitter, and violent conflict between Arabs and Jews for the next 30 years and beyond. So, as I said earlier, it begins. The Arabs are angry at the Jews for their immigration and the Zionist goal to create a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and they're angry at the British for allowing the Jews to do it. The Jews are angry at the Arabs for the violence of 1920 and 1921, and they are angry at the British for rewarding Arab violence. The British are telling themselves that they're satisfying all sides impartially, when in fact the opposite is happening. And the violence of 1920 and 1921 would also unite the Zionists in recognizing that they needed to create a strong system of Jewish self-defense. But that effort will also split them as Vladimir Jabotinsky grows a whole new Zionist tree branch with the goal of building what he calls the Iron Wall against the Arabs. That's next time. Thanks for listening. The Heathrows. <laughs>